0: Hello, this is Gabe from the Lovecraft Tapes Podcast, and today I'm speaking with Scott Dorward, the author of Hell in Texas, A Call of Cthulhu Modern Day Scenario, which is the basis for Chapter 5, Hell House, on our podcast. Hell in Texas is part of an anthology called The Things We Leave Behind, available on Stygian Fox Publishing, a successful Kickstarter launched in 2015 welcome Scott.
1: Well thank you very much Gabe thank you very much for having me on I, it's, it's an absolute delight I, I've I've become quite a fan of the podcast and uh, I, I'm delighted to come on and have a chat with you
0: Oh very glad to have you, glad you're enjoying the podcast and thank you for allowing us to use your scenario
1: Oh no it's my pleasure, I've like I say I've really been enjoying it and uh, he- hearing the the things you've all done to it have, have kind of warmed the black and cockles of my heart
0: So to start, what was your earliest encounter with the works of H.P. Lovecraft.
1: Oh, gosh. I must have been a fairly young kid at the time. Well, I say fairly young kid, probably about 10 years old. And I think the first Lovecraft story I read was the Moonbog, which you know, it isn't one of his great stories but it's it holds a place in my heart just because it was the first one i read i cannot for the life of me think of the anthology that that i came across in, but i i found it in the school library and and read it and and it kind of blew my mind and you know shortly after that i found uh in another anthology uh, the evil clergyman again not exactly one of his top tier stories but that one stuck with me as well and then I, I think the only other one i read before i discovered the call of cthulhu rpg was the outsider but then you know some years later when i was in my late teens i discovered call of cthulhu from that point onwards i basically went out and found every lovecraft story i could i picked up uh, all the the collections of them that were out at the time and and read them multiple times and then uh, read every other lovecraftian writer i could get my hands on in every anthology and yeah i don't think i've been quite right since then
0: Oh, that's how it goes for a lot of us. <laughs> You're not a true Lovecraft fan if you don't have one of his decently bad stories that you hold close to yourself.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And there, there are a fair few of those to choose from, particularly in his early work. I love Lovecraft's work dearly. I you know, I have problems with certain aspects of it. You know, he is still to this day one of my favorite writers. But yeah, some of his, his early stories in particular are execrable
0: when he's one of your favorites, you can overlook them.
1: Oh, absolutely. And you can even rejoice in in the over-the-top writing of his, his earlier stuff. I know a lot of people satirize the adjectival soup that makes up those early Lovecraft stories. His prose got a lot more tempered as he went on. But I sometimes I really like going back to those early stories and just looking at those those unwieldy strings of adjectives just clinging onto each other for dear life like you know, ants in a fast-moving current. And it's, 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 it's a thing of beauty.
0: I love the overriding. <laughs> That's how you got into the stories and you said you only read a few before, but how did you end up getting into the RPGs?
1: Like most people I started out with D&D. Um, when I was at school, I, I went to boarding school in England and I sort of stumbled across another kid there who told me you know, about this game that he'd play, been playing Dungeons and Dragons. I'd heard the name, but I'd assumed that it was a board game or a computer game or something. He invited me to play a game with him and I was hooked from the outset. And almost immediately I went out and I, I think I bought a copy of Traveller first of all because that, that kind of appealed to me you know, flicking through you know, one of the, the early issues of White Dwarf back in the days before it was just a games workshop publication, there were th- these adverts and then scenarios for this weird new game called Call of Cthulhu and I, I remember looking through one of the scenarios in there before I'd ever had a chance to, to even see the game rules or really knew much about what it was about and I just remember first of all thinking but you know, how can you run this? Where's the dungeon map? I was intrigued from that moment onwards, so I, you know, as soon as I got a chance, I ran off to you know, the local game shop, picked up a copy of uh, you know, what was second edition uh, Call of Cthulhu at the time, which was the first one to be published in the UK. Yeah, it was transformative experience for pretty much the rest of the 80s. I, I didn't run anything except for Call of Cthulhu.
0: I hear a lot of people who they'll get in through other RPGs, and then the minute they latch on to Call of Cthulhu, they just can't even play the other ones.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean I, I do still yeah, I mean I play a lot of other RPGs, but Call of Cthulhu, you know, still to this day is the dominant force in my gaming
0: life. When you find something like this, you can latch it onto books that you've already read. I love the aspect in which you can literally you can just open up the Lovecraft book, find something, add it into the RPG if you want.
1: Oh absolutely yeah I mean, even if you just limit yourself to Cthulhu Mythos stuff, I mean there's you know Lovecraft started writing this stuff you know 90 old years ago, and there have been so many writers that have followed in his wake since then. You know, if you're looking for inspiration in fiction, I mean, it's like drinking from a fire hose. There's just so much of it that it's overwhelming.
0: He's such an inspirational force. The fact that we're still playing the game based on his works to this day is telling.
1: There's just something about the way that he saw horror, the way that he reinvented it, that still feels maybe not fresh because it's been I suppose imitated so many times but still feels shocking to this day in a way that a lot of other supernatural horror doesn't. How long have you been writing these Call of Cthulhu scenarios? A long time I guess. I started writing my own Call of Cthulhu scenarios for pleasure almost as soon as I got hold of a copy so that was gosh back in 1983 or so 35 years then professionally I've only been doing it for about 10 years.
0: Do you have a favourite scenario, one that you did write, and one that someone
1: else wrote. My favorite out of the ones I've written that's actually really difficult because I, I, I like different scenarios for different reasons uh, the one that I've been going back to more and more recently uh, because I, I, I ran it for the first time since you know the original playtests quite recently was a scenario called Blackwater Creek uh, which is in the uh, Call of Cthulhu 7th edition uh, Keeper Screen pack yeah I mean I, I, I had a lot of fun writing that and it's I and mean, there's a lot of very personal aspects of the, that went into the creation of that as well there's I think, you know, so much that I care about in there, and I think the, the end product was one of the more successful scenarios I've written. So, yeah, if I had to choose one, it would probably be that. As far as scenarios that other people wrote, I guess there's a couple that I'd choose for different reasons. When I first started out running Call of Cthulhu, like I said, I you know, I tended to write my own stuff, but there was one scenario that I used as, you know, sort of my training wheels. Uh, it was the first one that I ever ran. You know, in most people's first experience of, of running Call of Cthulhu is The Haunting, which is a classic scenario for a reason. You know, It uses the haunted house tropes very well and you know, it's, it's got a real mythos spin and it's a great introductory scenario. That's not the one I ran first. <laughs> I remember I found it in a copy of Different Worlds, uh, which was the magazine Chaosium used to publish back in the 80s. And it was a scenario called The Crystal of Chaos and it was written by Peter Gillum. And it's basically a riff on Lovecraft's The Haunter of the Dark, and takes the events of that story and extrapolates them quite nicely. It's in fact been revised and expanded considerably since then, and is now in Chaosium's uh, House of Rillier collection. I I mean, I I won't say that it's the best call of Cthulhu scenario ever written, but I have a real fondness for it because it was my first. The one that I'd, I'd, I'd probably choose as my favourite, there's a bit of nepotism, I suppose, here, in that it was written by a friend of mine. It's a scenario called Gatsby and the Great Race that was written by my friend Paul Fricker. And, you know, full, full disclosure, I did actually edit uh, the, the scenario when he published it. But it's quite unlike anything else there is out there, in that it's huge. It can take up to 32 players, and it has multiple keepers. The first time that it was run, there must have been a at least six keepers involved in it, and possibly more. And I won't spoil any of, any of the stuff that goes on uh, in it. But it, I mean, it plays around an awful lot with you know things like identity and time, and and just generally weird stuff in a, a very entertaining way. And I, I think it's it's it is one of the most creative, and certainly one of the most bizarre scenarios I've ever played. It does turn up at conventions. I mean, I've seen it you know get run at Gen Con and Gary Con and so on, and number of conventions in the US. If you ever get a chance to sign up for it, I recommend it thoroughly.
0: I do go to some of those conventions, so I'm hoping that it'll be around. When there's multiple keepers, there's so much more to it. Oh, yes. Back to Hell House. Have you had any first-hand experiences with Hell Houses that may have influenced the writing?
1: No, none at all. The influence was the fact that I saw the 2001 documentary, Hell House, which was about the evangelical Hell House movement and one particular one in Texas. And I just watched that and thought, this is is some weird, weird shit. I just thought, I have to do something with this. And it just sat there in my mind for years. And I just kept thinking, how can I write a scenario that's sort of based on this? Because the the whole phenomenon fascinated me. But no, I mean, I've I've never been to one. I don't think I've been to a a sort of haunted house type thing since I was a kid. I'm quite a difficult person to scare. So I tend to find things like ghost trains and haunted houses and stuff like that a bit silly, personally. You know, from what I've seen about the evangelical hellhouse, I think my reaction to going around one of them would probably be less fear and more anger because of, of some of the content that goes in there, particularly the, the homophobic stuff. Like I say, it, it fascinates me as a cultural phenomenon, but only from afar
0: you tackled it very well in your scenario playing it and when i read through it it felt like i was there you wrote it very well because i have also seen like uh, stories about these places
1: well thank you very much i did have some help with that a friend of mine tiffany sanderson uh, matt sanderson's wife comes from the u.s she very kindly uh, helped me out with the research found as much as she could about the parachurch movement in various hell houses that have been run across the u.s just basically put together a fantastic dossier with lots of examples i I sort of lifted stuff from the, the Hell House documentary, lifted stuff from this to actually sort of make the you know the various rooms and events that were going on at the Angustine House in Hell in Hellen, Texas. The thing I found, though, was I ended up having to tone a lot of it down because, you know, so much of it was just so genuinely offensive. If I put it in unvarnished into the scenario, I, I think it would have been completely unpublishable. I and mean, as it was, the scenario was actually written for a different publisher other than the Stygian Fox, but they ended up rejecting it at the last minute, sort of saying, oh, actually, we've been through some of the content in this, and this was all content that was from actual hellhouses and just thought, this is too extreme to publish for Call of Cthulhu. And uh, yeah, it wasn't until The Things We Leave Behind was announced and I got in touch with Steph and she said, oh yeah, it's just the kind of thing we're looking for, that you know, it, it got a chance to actually go into print.
0: That's something that we dealt with in our own little Ways when we were recording these episodes, sometimes we got into the end, and I don't know if it was Jeremy or Brian would say, "Do you think we went too far? Do we need to put some content warning on this or something like that?" It's a difficult thing to convey without offending people. It
1: is, but at the same time, I tried very, very hard to be even-handed with it because you know, while I may not share the religious beliefs of the people, you know, who are running these hell houses, I try to be respectful of them. You know, even if I disagree on a visceral level with some of the things they say and do. It was always in my mind to try to portray the the characters, the NPCs in this, as being as sympathetic as people who hold those views could possibly be, that they were ordinary people who happened to have beliefs that I personally find quite repugnant. The other thing that sort of helped ground the whole thing, as you might be able to tell from my accent, I'm not from Texas. I've never actually been to Texas. I partly wanted to set this scenario in Texas because the original Hell House documentary was about and Texas. But mostly I, I wanted to session East Texas because I'm a big Joe R. Lansdale fan and you know a lot of his stuff is set around there, and yeah, you know, it's just a part of the country that particularly appealed to me. I realized as I was writing it up that I knew absolutely bugger all about the, the, the setting. I was saved from so many schoolboy errors by Brian Murphy, otherwise known as Keeper Murph of the Miskatonic University Podcast, who lives in small town East Texas. Coincidentally I didn't realise this when I was writing it all and sort of picked a place randomly on the map, but he lives about 15 miles from where this is set. I sent him a copy of the manuscript and he just went through sort of—you know, he was pointing out little things like, no, houses in East Texas don't have basements, the head of the police department in a town won't be called the sheriff, it'll be the chief of police. And there were just all sorts of little things like this that just stopped it from being a, an absolute mess.
0: I would have made those same mistakes because I also have never been to East Texas so you would have had me fooled if you didn't have that resource.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, but anyone from Texas playing it would have just been there shaking the heads going, oh, who is this idiot?
0: <laughs> After listening to this podcast, um, was there anything that you just wanted to, the players and you just kept waiting for them to do, but we just never did
1: it. Not really. I ran this so many times when I was playtesting with so many different groups. I've seen a lot of different variations, a lot of different approaches to it, and yours wasn't particularly unusual. It was very different than any one that I ran because you know you were playing FBI agents or your know, outside parties coming in potentially, even if you know not in practice, but potentially had a bit of authority. Whereas you know when I'd run it before, it tended to be you know, fairly ordinary people with no authority of the law behind them the only thing that i was sort of willing you to do earlier on and you did eventually but it was uh, interacting more with the volunteers in the hell house itself because you know there, there was a fairly large cast of characters there each of whom sort of knew different bits of, of what was going on and had the secrets and stuff like that and it did seem like you know for the first few episodes at least you were sort of circling the hell house you, you sort of went there once but it took longer than i'd expected before you really engaged with the place i think that's because you were having so much fun in the town itself that but,
0: yeah, it's... <laughs> We're an easily distractible group of men. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, just just like most groups of people I play with. So yeah, I, 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 I think it, it all worked out in the end.
0: Now, you say you've seen this scenario played a lot, but have you ever seen... It played with such reckless abandon as Roy did.
1: <laughs> what, like uh, the 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 classic? I I know how to stop the barkeeper from uh, barkeep from making that phone call bit. Yes, yeah, that that was <laughs> that, that that was possibly my favourite bit in the entire playthrough. Just I, I I was I I can't remember what I was doing. I was wandering around the house doing housework, listening to it with headphones, and I just sort of stopped, and it was what 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 what's he what's he doing what's he doing (laughs) yeah that 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 was an absolute delight
0: Was there some of the changes that we made that surprised you?
1: Uh, no, I mean, there were, there were a lot of ones that I liked. The biggest change that I saw that I found myself really wishing that I'd, I'd thought of it myself was something Jeremy threw in, which was, you know, having the entity in the house actually manifesting later on as Kelly Landrum. That that had just never occurred to me. In retrospect, it seems like such an obvious thing to do, uh, you know, sort of playing up the, the, the more traditional haunting aspect of it. But I've been so focused on sort of the poltergeist activity and the, the sort of Satanic imagery and so on. That I would know, sort of missed some of the more traditional horror tropes there. After you know hearing some of the things Jeremy was doing, there with, with describing stuff. I was kicking myself afterwards, thinking, "Oh, I should have thought of that."
0: Well, that's a big compliment coming from you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. The other change I, I I think I noticed was that, which I think was a really good idea for the podcast, was that Jeremy perhaps downplayed some of the elements of of what was going on in the house. Not the supernatural ones, but in terms of some of the content of of the Hell House itself, some of the more controversial stuff. There's, you know, a time and a place for a game that involves stuff like that, but I think, you know, you've got a slightly more comedic tone with the game. As a podcast you don't shy away from the horror and the nastiness, but the tone of the podcast tends to be relatively light for the, the majority of it. I think if it had started doing things like engaging the abortion debate, it would have become a very very different game (laughs) i think that yeah that that was a very smart change to make
0: did it drive you crazy that we kept Messing up Ellers and Ellis?
1: No it didn't because that was not your fault There's a bit of history to this The character of Dawn Ellers was always called Dawn Ellers but the character of Steve Ellis Wasn't. This was a last minute Change that happened before the Book went to press. It was an editorial Change afterwards because you know, the, the, As he pointed out earlier the things we leave Behind was a Kickstarter campaign One of the high level backers of it was a, Actually a friend of mine called Steve Ellis The reward that he got for being at a high tier was being able to, you know, rename one of the NPCs in one of the scenarios to his own name. He's played in a lot of games with me, and he played in Hell in Texas, and so he chose that scenario and sort of said, oh, yeah, can I, can I have an NPC renamed after after me in that one, please? The police officer in it was originally, I think, called Zach Windley, which was a very different name, which was something you certainly wouldn't co- you know, mix up with, with Ellis. But, you know, because Steve ha- you know, got, got his name in there, the, you, you had that Ellis-Ellis confusion. In retrospect, if I mean, if I'd realized that was going to happen, I would have suggested uh, renaming Dawn Ellis to something else to, to avoid that confusion. But I doubt you're going to be the last group that has that problem.
0: <laughs> In retrospect, I'm glad it happened so we could all get that piece of info, because that's very interesting.
1: Oh, right. OK.
0: Are you working on any other upcoming Call of Cthulhu scenarios currently?
1: The short answer is yes. I can't unfortunately talk about them in too much detail because there are various things that I'm doing for Chaosium at the moment and uh, you know, they, they don't tend to like to talk about work in progress. But yeah, I'm, I'm working on three scenarios for them at the moment for different projects. Uh, the one thing I can talk about because it's it's in layout at the moment and should be coming out fairly soon, the last big project I completed working on with them uh, was the new edition of, of Masks of Nyarlathotep. Mike Mason, the light an editor of, of Call of Cthulhu basically put together a small team of me, Lynn Hardy who's, who's the deputy editor at, uh, at Chaosium and Paul Fricker who's the co-author of, of Call of Cthulhu 7th edition along with Mike and so the four of us basically went through Masks of Nialathtep and revised it re-edited it so that it flowed better updated everything to Call of Cthulhu 7th edition put in additional options for for Pop Cthulhu restructured things a bit so that it was easier to use as a reference and easier to follow the flow of the text. Reworked a few bits which perhaps hadn't aged particularly well and generally gave it a, a coat of polish. The other thing we did at the same time was decided that it needed a new introductory scenario because it starts off with this big hook that you are friends of, of this, this writer called Jackson Elias who is, has called you to New York because he's got this big story. And a number of keepers have struggled over the years with the fact that the players are all expected to have this bond with the character of Jackson Elias, even though he's this NPC that's potentially come out of nowhere in this campaign. Various people have have worked around this by writing their own introductory scenarios, but we figured it it would be a good idea to put one in the campaign itself as an option there, so you could run it ahead of time and and actually introduce the character before the main campaign itself. I wrote a new new scenario set in Peru in 1921, which introduces the character of Jackson Elias and uh, sort of foreshadows a lot of the other stuff that's going on in the campaign. I think it came out fairly well.
0: Well, I'll be excited to look at that. I urge our listeners to keep their eyes out for Scott Dorwood works and potentially go back and look at the old ones too, because out of what I've seen, they're all excellent so far. Well, thank you very much. Do you have any favorite Lovecraftian forms of medium? Are you partial to the games, books, comic books I always like?
1: I started out with fiction, and that, that's still my first love. I still read a lot of Lovecraftian fiction to this day. I think it's a really exciting time for Lovecraftian fiction at the moment, because it is going in all sorts of unexpected directions. You've got people who are reinventing Lovecraft in strange new ways, like uh, Ann Emrys with uh, her Litany of Earth, Matt Ruff's Lovecraft Country, which sort of tackles Lovecraft's racism head-on and mixes it in with Jim Crow era, travels through the US. You've got Victor Laveau's The Ballad of Black Tom, which takes the, the, the horror red hook and flips it on its head and, and does something absolutely marvellous with it. And there's there's so much exciting stuff coming out at the moment that you know, is it's, it's a great time to be a, a fan of, of Lovecraftian fiction.
0: Now we're seeing Lovecraft become mainstream on some level.
1: Yeah, it, it's been quite bizarre. I think I think it's less Lovecraft and more Cthulhu, and it, that's always been a bizarre thing to me. That that Cthulhu has become this pop culture icon. I think this is something that we tend to see with with horror icons in general. They become embraced by a larger mainstream and sort of defanged and neutered and made safe in the process. The fact that you've gone from Cthulhu as this this sort of hideous entity that you know will, will devour you as soon as look at you, you know, sends maddening dreams out that inspire. Everything from twisted creativity to bloodthirsty murder will presage the transformation of humanity into something sort of bestial and savage. That you've gone from that to, you know, kind of cute Cthulhu plushies and dolls and slippers. It's really, really quite bizarre to me.
0: I don't ever really like seeing those. Plushies over at the store.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I, the one that that always gets to me—I mean, not Lovecraftian. That's that's absolutely bizarre to me—is the adoption of Pinhead from Hellraiser as, as another sort of geek uh, icon like this, where you'll see sort of bubblehead uh, uh, Pinhead toys and stuff like that. And yeah, I mean, if you go back to the original film Hellraiser, the original script of it was called Sadomasochists from Beyond, and yeah, he, he is this sort of leather-clad, self-mutilating essence horror that comes along and just destroys human flesh and souls in pursuit of the ultimate pleasure and to have that as a toy that you can just put on the dashboard of your car is just weird
0: (laughs) oh yeah, that's one of my favourites too so I'm seeing it on two ends so we're at the apex of the interview you will be the first person to ever answer this question live oh dear it's something that we spent literally seconds thinking about and it's very important
1: I I feel honoured
0: Would you rather fight a hundred duck sized Cthulhus or one Cthulhu sized duck?
1: Oh, it would have to be a hundred duck-sized Cthulhus, just because if you go back to the description of Cthulhu in The Call of Cthulhu, that throwaway line about a mountain walk to you, know, the, the, <laughs> like, that is a big duck. That—that—that <laughs> that, that is a duck that will crush you under its webbed feet, that would peck you like a little grain of sand and, and not even notice. So yeah, that that, that would be a, a terrifying duck. But on the other hand, you know, a hundred duck-sized Cthulhus, yes, all right, they'd be nasty. They be you know sending their maddening dreams out, but yeah, fundamentally, I feel like I could run away from them a bit better. <laughs>
0: Well, there you have it, folks.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Cthulhu's described as being flabby. He's almost as out of shape as I am, so I I stand a chance.
0: You've given great reasons, more than I expected to receive. (laughs) (laughs) So, where can people get in touch with you? On the internet? The
1: best place is the website I share with my friends uh, Matt Sanderson and Paul Fricker, com. The three of us do a, a podcast together called The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, where we talk about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, weird fiction, and anything else that. That influences our gaming lives. All three of us worked on Call of Cthulhu Seventh Edition in different capacities, and we all, you know, freelance for various game publishers, particularly you know, writing stuff for Call of Cthulhu. I'd like to think you know we bring some insights to our, our discussion. You know, if you go to the website, you'll find out about the podcast. There, you'll find uh, links to my social media presences, or at least our shared social media presences, and all sorts of ways of, of contacting me should you want to.
0: Well, thank you for your time. I wish you well, and perhaps down the line, we'll use one of your scenarios again. Marvelous. I look forward to it.
1: For more information and sponsorship opportunities, please send
0: email to podcast at thelovecrafttapes.com.